Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored, the Dirty Books podcast. I'm Aoife Vretnach, back for another season of Reading and Rating the Filth. After my summer break, I'm raring to go, and I hope ye are too. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for all your lovely reviews, and hello to those of you listening outside Ireland, in the UK, Australia, America, Germany, even Japan. Thank you for writing such nice things about the podcast. You really are the best. If anyone wants to help me keep this smut train on the tracks, you can find a link to Patreon and merch in the show notes. So I'm opening this season, season eight, with an Irish author whose work has kind of fallen out of favour. Maura Lafferty is not in the list of big names that everyone is familiar with. She's not mentioned in the same sentence as Kate O'Brien or Shona Fueloin that often. Their work is still in print and hers is not. But in the 40s and 50s, she was much more popular than these two. Her obscurity might be because her charming novels were popular bestsellers. Her first book, called Never No More, was a hit in Ireland, Britain and America. The Observer in London called it, quote, a darling book. Here is Irish character at its wisest, its worst, its wildest. There is not an unfeeling line in the book, unquote. I know, I winced at Darlin as well. But if an author can please an Irish audience with a book that gets called Darlin by the British, she must be doing something special. Of course, Never No More was not banned. So this episode has to be about her second novel, Alone We Embark. I wonder if she was surprised this was censored, since the subject matter and the style, they're not too far apart from her first. Both novels are set in a village in the Midlands. Both feature an older matriarch counselling young women and children. Nobody said anything about the sex work and child sexual abuse in Never Know More, so she probably thought her writing about sex in rural Ireland was just fine. To follow it up, she wrote this novel about love and lust, featuring some of the worst father figures you'll ever encounter. Unfortunately, this time her charming storytelling couldn't obscure her serious intent and Alone We Embark was banned immediately after its publication in 1943. The good news is it wasn't on the blacklist for long. 
She appealed in 1953 and she won. Looking at the library catalogues today, I can tell from the age of the books that it was bought straight away and stayed in circulation ever since. So it was read pretty soon after it was published. I mean, what's a 10-year delay when you consider some books are censored for 40 years? Before we dive into the novel, though, we need a drink to go with it. In Lafferty's books, food and drink are just fundamental to the narrative. Her other job was as a cookery writer, and many homes had a copy of her Full and Plenty in the kitchen. There is a wonderful scene in Alone We Embark when the main character, Julia, makes a cage of spun sugar to surround a flummery, which is a set milk dessert. It's pages of build-up as the precious sugar is pounded, stirred, then caramelised and spun into a bowl. When it works and the creamy flummery showed through the web as the shoulders of a Spanish girl will gleam through a lace mantilla, I nearly drop the book in relief. But nobody has such an ornate dessert to hand, so we'll have to go for a cup of tea and a nice scone. Much of the action takes place in Julia's kitchen, where tea is drunk in industrial quantities. And although half the book is set during World War II, rationing is more a background hum than a dominant note. Ireland's slightly detached war experience is part of the novel's more political narratives. But let's just forget about the politics. We're not going there right now. Where are the sexy bits in Alone We Embark? Honestly, there aren't many. The first suggestion of anything, well untoward, is this description of Mary from page 10. There was something very melting about the slope of her breast and the tender turn of the neck, supporting a face that had the shape and colour and texture of a briar petal. Could this have set off alarm bells for the censors? Was it just too dangerously sensual? I really hope it wasn't this, because the style here is quite folksy, It's more akin to a popular ballad than a racy novel. If the censors were so intolerant that this sort of thing was out, there was indecency happening every night by firesides as traditional ballads were sung. The tone of the novel is set by the main character, Julia, and it's all about common sense, wisdom, pragmatism, and a bit of homespun truth. In fact, sexual passion is deeply suspicious to this novel. Chapter 2 opens like this. There is an affliction that sometimes comes on men and women, striking them with suddenness and changing them from sane people into creatures without sense or wisdom. It starts with a widening of the eyes and a quick pounding of the heart, and then it runs like wildfire through the whole body until there is nothing but a madness in the blood that drives out all loyalties, all feeling for home and self and kin, and leaves only a thirst for one pair of arms, one pair of lips. This affliction is often mistaken for love, but there is nothing of love in it. Love is tender and thoughtful and enduring. This other thing may last for a year or even ten years. More often it does not endure beyond the first slaking of the thirst. Phew, there you go. The other thing isn't even named, but we all know she's thinking about the word lust. Desire here is a madness that possesses a person, causing them to abandon home and kin and self to satisfy their base physical passions. This is hardly the sort of thing 
that deserves censorship in Ireland. How could this corrupt a reader? I mean, it sounds like exactly the tone and ideology that drives the censorship. Frankly, it's the opposite of immoral. What could be more conservative than this framing of physical desire? Very odd, isn't it? So the lust maddened girl in this novel's first half is Mary. She's the daughter of Julia's oldest best friend and is kind of like Julia's adoptive daughter. She falls hard for Rowan, a musician who's passing through the village. Mary drops her long-term sensible option boyfriend in favour of this fly-by-night wanderer. These two might be demented with desire, but they do the right thing and get married before shagging each other. Once again, very morally upstanding storyline. He turns out to be a useless, miserable failure of a husband, but conveniently dies of TB. Mary returns to her mother's house with her young child Tommy, and life goes on quietly. So she suffered because of her desire, but not that much. So far, so uncontentious. It's about halfway through the book before Lafferty gets into more weighty stuff that might have offended the censors. And really, I think it's the politics aspect rather than the sex here that was a problem. And not politics in the high politics sense, like national stuff, republicanism. It's actually social issues, I think, that might have pissed off the censors. Mary's mother needs nursing care at this point because she's become confined to the bed. Without the money to pay for a private nurse, Mary tries to do it herself, but is about to lose her job because it's just too much. Her boss advises her to send the mammy into the county home, the local hospital where the elderly can receive long-term care. Mary is horrified, replying, The union? I couldn't put my mother into the union, Mr Bergen. None of my family ever went into the workhouse. Right, quick pause for a bit of historical context. Mary is right. The county home was the new name for the union workhouse. These workhouses had opened in the mid-19th century across Ireland, and if you were poor, they were the only way to get food and clothing to support yourself. They were rigid, impersonal institutions that labelled poor people as pauper inmates. And I think the echoes of imprisonment are deliberate. No one wanted to go into a workhouse because families were split up by age and gender. The conditions inside were deliberately worse than those outside in the community, so that only the truly desperate, those practically starving, would come in. They were designed as bleak places that punished the poor for their poverty. When the new state was founded, the workhouses were rebranded as county homes. The names inside the walls were changed too, so that a ward might go from aged, infirm male ward to, say, St. Brendan's Ward. Conditions, though, didn't change much. There was no desire to spend any more money. I mean, the poor ratepayers, they were broke already, apparently. So when Mary is revolted at the thought of sending her mother into hospital, she refuses to call the county home by its new name. For Mary and her mother, it will always be the union, the workhouse. Her fear was perfectly rational and understandable to readers in the 1940s. In fact, all Irish people born before the 60s pretty much shared it. I don't think Laverty was being especially controversial here. 
It's what happens as a result of Mary's loathing of the workhouse that Lafferty pushed boundaries of what might have been deemed acceptable to the censors. When Mary is faced with losing her job or sending her mother to the union, she asks Johnny Dunn for a lend of £50. Now Johnny's a rich man she works with who can well afford to lend her the money, but he doesn't. Instead, he tells her, I've a great grow for you, which means that he loves her. But as he says these words, this is how Lafferty describes it. All the time he had been speaking, his eyes had been fumbling at Mary's breast, never travelling higher than the collar of her dress, but now they crept quickly up to her face. From their senile salacity, Mary recoiled, outraged. Oh God, so disgusting, he's one slimy fucker. And once again, we're back to lust. And this time it's in the familiar trope of an older, richer man propositioning a young, pretty woman. Everyone reading this is supposed to be revolted. We're kind of familiar with this. But here's where Laverty makes it interesting. She ties this oppressive narrative to Irish rural marriage practices. Because Johnny quickly assures Mary he wants to marry her, saying, I'm not making indecent proposals to you. Naturally, when you read it, you think this is fucking indecent and obscene. Marrying him is nearly worse than simple sexual blackmail. Johnny goes on to damn himself by saying that he should be marrying a woman with money and he has a match half made with someone worth two grand. What he says next really disgusts the reader, though. And this is from page 89. They'll say I'm getting romantic. What do I care? I can afford to marry the woman that pleases me. The first time I married, twas for money. She was a good woman, God rest her, but dry and old. This time, that won't be the story with me. I'll be getting the best-looking girl in Ireland. Yikes, it's just grotesque. Like arranged marriages between equally well-off people were common in rural Ireland. But what Johnny is proposing is really horrible. He wants to buy her body. Remember those eyes fumbling over her breasts. Once again, Mary is faced with lust, uh, but this time it's not reciprocal, so it's a lot more disgusting. She is truly horrified and flatly turns him down. Unfortunately, this means that she cannot afford to keep her mother at home, and so she is admitted to the union. What haunts Mary is that her mother is terrified of dying in the union. It's not really the horrible sheets or the hard beds that bother her. Dying in the workhouse was a real and genuine fear. My grandparents' generation all had it, and they started to die in the 80s and 90s. So the cultural horror of the workhouse long outlasted its name change to the county home in the 20s. Mary is tortured by the idea of her mother alone in the union, so visits her unexpectedly. A nightmarish scene confronts her. The staff are stuffing an elderly woman into a straitjacket, while the bed-bound patients watch in distress. This part is really dramatic, but it's just too long to read out. You'll have to read it yourself. It's kind of Dickensian, to be honest. Mary is paralysed with horror until she sees her mother. The old lady's hair has been shorn off, cut so close to the skull that her daughter doesn't recognise her. The matron says dismissively, Oh, her hair! 
Naturally, we had to cut it off when it was verminous. How do you expect us to keep it clean? The staff in the county home are as cold, dismissive and abusive as the workhouse was reported to be. The patients get infested with lice. It's disgusting. Mary knows she has no choice now. To save her mother from this degradation, she has to marry an old lech for his money. She makes this foul bargain with her eyes open and really her heart breaks for her. She even finds it hard to put a brave face on it. After the honeymoon, she says to Julia, if I swam a mile in the canal, I wouldn't feel clean again. I think this is a pretty devastating critique. This is a fairly devastating critique of Irish society. Here, marriage isn't a sacred bond, blessed by God, but a base trading of money for flesh. She might have gotten married, but Mary has prostituted herself for the sake of her mother. It's clear that Johnny's lust has perverted the institution of marriage, that his covetous desire for her body is grotesque and unforgivable. Lafferty is clearly taking aim at men with power, those whose bank balances allow them to lord it over the poor. She's also asking whether marriage can be a sacrament in this context. I mean, can it even be holy? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But harsh and all as our criticism of Johnny is, Lafferty really takes aim at the state with this storyline. This is a chilling depiction of poverty and old age in the new county homes, where the new republic has made next to no difference at all. And she's quite explicit this is a state problem. At one point, she has a staff member say, this is a state-controlled institution. Honestly, this is a more secular critique of Ireland in the 40s than anyone seems capable of today. If a contemporary writer includes institutional abuses from this time period in their work, there has to be a nun organising it. Yet Lafferty left all the nuns and priests out of this. I think that's a very deliberate choice, since nuns were often matrons and nurses in the county home. So why did she decide to portray the callous staff as lay people? Quite possibly this is self-censorship. 
She knows that to get it under the censors' noses, she can't be slagging off the religious. Or it could be that she believed the state had a lot more power than the church in these county homes. Whatever the reason behind her choice, this reveals a cruel, deeply materialistic society where the state empowers rich sexual predators like Johnny Dunn. Furthermore, the state's failure to care for poor people corrupts the institution of marriage. It's feckin' explosive stuff, really. Having set Mary up in this travesty of a marriage, Lafferty then explores how she might experience love and desire in a proper way. Her former boyfriend Dennis returns from America, and of course, they hook up. When Johnny finds out, she must end it, but not before we get a scorching sex scene. Well, it's more of a gentle simmer than boiling hot, but at this stage we're 130 pages into a 200-page book, so I'll take what I can get. So to set the scene then, Mary and Dennis are under a hedge, partially hidden from the road. She sits next to him on his coat, and you know where this will end already, but I'll read it out to you, because that's why we're here. So you can wallow in the full glory of it. Then he turned and caught her to him with a little strangled cry, and she was being pressed back onto the leafy bed. Don't, Dennis, don't, for God's sake, don't. Ah, let me, let me, love. There's the hunger of a lifetime on me. Sure, I can't help it. I love you so much, Mary. She tried to resist, but woman pity for male exigency welled up in her, sweeping away will and conscience. With these two watchdogs gone, her freed longing rushed gladly to meet him, and they were lifted together into a beauty that was unbearable, into a delight that was heart-stopping. So there you go. Straight up adultery. And the sex is great. Even though there is a little bit of coercion there at the beginning, he compels her to give in. And I have to say, I am revolted by the phrase, woman pity for male exigency. That's just nasty. But you know, those reservations aside, this is framed as proper love and sex, rather than polluting lust. Mary does mention sin, but it's not really a huge deal. When the novel opens with that conservative vision of sexual attraction, where lust was madness, I did not think we would end up cheering on adultery. Without doubt, this was unacceptable to the censors. This was definitely bannable. But that's not all. From this page onwards, Lafferty packs in the drama. Much of the novel is a setup for the end, where the storylines gallop along to meet it. Don't get me wrong, part one is very enjoyable, with lots of amusing vignettes, but nothing like the second half. Johnny comes back into the storyline with a vengeance because he is desperate to have a baby with Mary. He buys bottles of herbal medicine from the local herbalist and credits these with Mary's pregnancy when it does happen. But of course, you know, I know, and Julia knows that Dennis is the father. This is a little bit soap opera. And perhaps that's not surprising. Lafferty actually wrote a TV soap called Tolkarow in the 60s. Her taste for melodrama of that type is pretty obvious here. Because, of course, there's no point in a big secret like this in a soap unless it's discovered. And both Dennis and Johnny learn the truth about Mary's pregnancy. But that's enough detail about the plot. We'd be here all day if I were to go into the ins and outs of it. You really will have to read it. So let's fast forward to the ending, which is a little bit OTT. Johnny accidentally drives his big fancy car into a wall and is killed instantly. 
In the car are three other characters, Burr Higgins and his daughter Teedy and Paddy Gallagher. I haven't gone into great detail on these lads' storylines, but they are also examples of failed masculinity. Burr is a neglectful, drunken father who resents his daughter Teedy for justifiably holding that behaviour against him. Paddy Gallagher is a Republican who turns his back on his girlfriend and his father for violent republicanism, even though he knows it's a pointless political project. Like Johnny, these men are hurting women in order to prove their masculinity to themselves. I do think it's interesting that they're less interested in proving their manhood to wider society. This isn't a performance for reputation among other men. Lafferty shows that they're obsessed with their own egos and their own feelings. In this convenient car accident, all the men are killed, while the young girl TD walks away without a scratch. It's a brutal narrative vengeance for their failings. Let's look closely then at Paddy Gallagher, the Republican insurrectionist. He plays a large part in the political narrative, which I haven't really gone into. Political as in Irish Republican, foundation of the state kind of politics. Paddy paces Julia's kitchen, explaining why he hates the British, why he must continue a fight for Irish freedom. As he rants on, Julia experiences a peculiar sensation. And this is page 110. She had a feeling that all this was familiar, that she had heard it all somewhere before. Suddenly she placed it, and into her mind leaped the memory of Mary Sheehy, her tortured face, her self-castigation, on the evening she had announced her intention of marrying Rowan. It's the self-same thing, the woman told herself with wonder. Mary Sheehy called it love, and Paddy Gallagher calls it patriotism. But it's the very same madness. Okay, I think that's extraordinary. Lafferty has just drawn a direct line between that base passion affecting Mary, that blood-boiling sexual attraction, to Paddy's republicanism. Lafferty is saying that Paddy's got the horn for republican violence. I'm a little bit shocked by this, to be honest, because in this charming, bucolic village lurks sexual passion so strong it drives men and women to make terrible choices. Paddy's lust fades, of course. A stint in prison sobers him up. Unfortunately, he sticks to his principles, refuses to take the easy option and renounce his republicanism for a life with a woman he loves. He chooses to stay loyal to some abstract principle over his girlfriend. Paddy is in the car that day because he's returning to prison to serve the rest of his sentence, to prove something to himself about guts and perseverance. He's not sure what it is, but he's going to do it anyway. Lafferty rewards his character's futile self-sacrifice with death. He wanted to die for Ireland, so she gives him death, but it's not a noble or patriotic one. The moral of the story is get married and live a good life. Except that hardly any of the other characters manages a good marriage. It feels a bit like a mirage shimmering in the distance. And the dominant point of view of the novel is Julia, an unmarried older woman who's living a very good life a worthy one, without any marriage. For all those preachy moments and its obvious morality, there's a lot of unease about marriage. It may be an ideal state for Lafferty, but there are many full lives lived outside its parameters and she doesn't shy away from showing how it can deform people as well. I admit it's really odd that a novel advocating universal marriage should be banned. 
But that's the Irish censors for you. They were fierce odd. Just to see if they had any cause for complaint, let's play censorship bingo to pick out the bold bits. Maybe alone we embark was filthy. And we start as usual with breasts. Oh yes, Mary's breasts are an important feature of the story, or rather Johnny Doran leering covetously at them. They're clothed at all times, but he undresses her with his eyes. Yuck. Next up, bestiality. Uh, Definitely not. There is a man called Lamb Doyle, but that's because he suffers from acute religious mania. It's a reference to the Lamb of God rather than any um, sexual proclivities. Sex work. No, not this time. And then racism. Well, there are casual slurs thrown around at black people and Irish travellers. So yes. Drugs. Well, no. Lots of people are drinking too much, of course, but that's fairly standard and not even seen as addictive. Politics. Oh, for definite, there's lots of politics in this. There's the political stuff about republicanism. There's the emergency in the background, a little bit about rationing and the war. And of course, there's all that politics of social welfare and poverty. So yeah, we could tick this many times. Next up, swearing. Unfortunately not. There's a lot of dialect or Hiberno-English, but there's no filthy language. And on a tangential point, I think that's what makes it feel a bit stagey. Hiberno-English without the occasional swear just sounds too cute to be true. If you strip the hard stuff out, the cutting remarks and the vicious insult, non-standard Irish speech just sounds a bit begara when it's written down. Now Lafferty actually doesn't use the word begara, I'm not accusing her of that. Most of it sounds natural and unforced. But a few sharp words would have given it a real bite. But anyway, enough tangents. There's actually no swearing, so I can't tick it. Next up, infidelity. Well, definitely. Mary and Dennis have it off under a hedge. And then crime. It's an interesting one because the Republican insurrection is framed as illegal, but not like that illegal. Julia and everyone else seems to know what's going on, but no one wants to stop Paddy. It's not framed as absolutely criminal, more deluded. Political violence often occupies a fuzzy place in Irish people's schema of legal versus criminal. So, and I think that's an example of this here. I don't think I can take crime, really. Next up, genitalia. Uh, No, not at all. Abortion? No way. Orgies? No, certainly not. And then sexual assault. Well, there's actually a number of abusive moments in this novel. Mary is violated, and that's the word that's used by her husband. It may not be legally considered assault at this time, but it's definitely portrayed as immoral. When Mary is married to her useless first husband, he's described as being overly amorous with Mary in public, while at the same time he slimes over other women. So I think there's a hint there of sexual impropriety. So I can take this for certain. Extramarital pregnancy. So Mary's pregnancy is within marriage, but her husband isn't the father. But still, that's not quite extramarital. There is one reference to a bloke who's been responsible for three pregnancies in unmarried women and one in a married woman. He turns out to be the tout, the informer. So there is a direct line drawn between his immoral sexual behaviour and his sneaking ways. Thanks to that one line, I can tick the box. And then masturbation. Uh, Definitely not. Sex toys? Also no. 
Feminism. This is a category that's given me a bit of trouble. I don't think this novel is a full-throated defence of equality, a call to arms for the sisterhood, but it has moments where it's subversive of gender and sex roles that you might expect it to support. Even giving a character a voice to protest about marital rape is a big deal in the 1940s. And Mary's love for Dennis isn't really problematised as sin. Of course, best of all, those failing men are brutally killed off at the end. But at the same time, Julia insists to Mary that she must stay married, even if her husband is a complete arsehole. This is a pretty patriarchal argument. I think the stance on marriage as permanent and eternal makes it impossible to see this as feminist, since divorce has long been a goal of feminism. So no, I don't think this is really feminist. Next up, divorce. Well, the word isn't even mentioned. Not even discussed as an option you can't do, because of course it doesn't exist. Mary's only option for escape from her marriage was running away or death. So I can't take that. Contraception. Uh, no way. God, no way. Not a chance. Menstruation. No, even though there are growing girls in the narrative, and her first novel, Never No More, does actually contain a scene about menstruation. But in this case, sorry, I can't take it. Blasphemy. I'm going to argue yes to this one. Now, I know I said there was very little on the church, so how can this be? Well, Julia is set up as the voice of moral authority, and she pretty much brings it up. When Johnny is slobbering over the idea of marrying the gorgeous Mary, he anticipates a fine family of children. Julia cautions him, saying, that's something we'll have to leave in the hands of God. Now, at this point, what Johnny should say, what the cultural expectation is, he should say something like, ah, with the help of God. But he doesn't. His next line is, she'll have them all right. And he says it with conviction. And there it is, a willful disregard for God's will, a failure to accept that God ordains everything. I knew Johnny was fecked when I read that line. There's no way such a moral novel would let him get away with it. And this is definitely blasphemous. You must not question God's will or interpret it for yourself. So yeah, we can take this. Oral sex. Well, there were no details on who put what where, so no. Graphic violence. There's a lot of imagined violence or considered violence, but it's not graphic, so I can't take that. LGBTQ plus content? I couldn't see anything in this. So if we add it up, Alone We Embark scores 7 out of 25, which surprises me. It feels much more innocuous than that, almost innocent. For what it's worth, I think her first novel scores the same. There was lots of sexual assault and unmarried pregnancy in that too. So how did one become a bestseller and the other end up on the blacklist? I've no fucking idea. The censorship sometimes seems so random. She did win her appeal against the ban in 1953, so maybe they realised they'd made a mistake. After all, not all the appeals won. They said no to a fair portion of them. After the prohibition order was lifted, it went straight onto Irish library shelves. A fair few libraries around the country still have this novel, even though it hasn't been reissued since the 1940s. Lafferty went on to be a popular writer up until the 60s, so there's no sign being censored ruined her career in a general sense. Anyway, I'd recommend you read it. 
if you can find an old copy somewhere, and especially if you're interested in Irish women's writing. Lafferty might not be literary canon, but she definitely influenced her successors. Next time, I'm turning from books to magazines. I have covered one newspaper already. You might remember the News of the World episode before, but there were hundreds of magazines banned. We'll start our journey into filthy mags with True Detective, a stalwart of true crime from the mid-20th century. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy dirty. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.